This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I visit with Parth Chandra. He is the founder and CEO of Electrity, a leading technology platform that combines upfront due diligence approval of planned third-party spin with the analysis of the actual spin, focusing on fraud, corruption, and conflicts of interest. We talk about Parth's nearly 20-year journey through compliance, first as a lawyer and now as the CEO of a tech company supporting compliance practitioners and lawyers. Fascinating story, and the software he and his team have developed, I think, is one of the most innovative products for the compliance practitioner uh, that I've I've heard about in a long, long time. So I know you will enjoy this episode. He's also recently quoted in Fraud Magazine. We'll talk about that article as well. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And not only are you in for a real treat today, because but I'm in for a real treat today because I get to visit with one of my favorite people, Francine McKenna. Uh, Francine writes for Market Watch. She is the well-known blogger for from Ray the Auditor's and has been in the audit world for uh, a long professional career. And now she talks about it from the market watch perspective. So Francine, first of all, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Yes, there is. And uh, someone actually called me, I think uh, within the last two days, a reporter and asked me for some comments about KPMG. And that was even before David Britt pled guilty. So maybe we can start with that, because that is, uh, from my perspective, one of the biggest scandals I've seen from not only the big four, but the PCAOB. I think it, it really uh, gravitated up into the SEC. And, and we could start with that and maybe get your thoughts on how the greater auditing profession and um, has been affected by that scandal. Francine, has Tom Whittle been sentenced? Uh, No. So the cooperating witness, Tom Whittle, uh, has not yet been sentenced. His sentencing was delayed um, pending the trial of David Britt, the last one to be tried. But now David Britt uh, pleaded guilty and uh, he's awaiting sentencing. And now we've cleared the deck so that Tom Whittle can be sentenced. And also um, uh, Jeffrey Wada, who was the PCAOB professional who uh, was found guilty in the trial with Mittendorf. So what does uh, this mean for KPMG going forward and then perhaps a discussion about what it means for the greater profession as well? Well, the other thing that happened and a lot of people were wondering uh, when or why it hadn't happened yet is that uh, KPMG CEO um, Lynn Doty resigned and um, So it was sort of hard to understand how she could remain in her position. And she had another uh, potential term uh, that she could serve, another five-year term, I think. And it would would have been sort of 
surprising or how, how could she stay in, in this position given, you know, the complete top of her audit practice in the U.S. had been, uh, you know, um, indicted and now uh, will likely go to jail or at least have some significant penalties. So she resigned and some things have shifted around um, and it's, it's really kind of uh, um, going to be interesting to see how they find untainted partners to take leadership roles at KPMG. Uh, I'm working with some academics on some additional research related to all the data that's available in the transcript. So if you go through the transcripts of the trial, there's just tons and tons and tons of information about the clients and the personnel at the PCOB and at KPMG that touch this information that uh, was stolen from the PCAOB. And it's, you know, even though there were only five people indicted, um, there are a lot of people uh, at KPMG who uh, could arguably, uh, uh, you know, uh, be um, uh, potentially um, scrutinized in terms of their level of really um, obliviousness to the fact that they were using information that was inappropriate and that they weren't supposed to have. I mean, there's actually some very blatant um, uh, accusations by uh, Whittle and Brian Sweet, um, uh, the former PCOB person who came over with the data, um, that certain people very, real, very specifically knew that they were told specifically uh, that the data was, uh, you know, lists that they got early from the PCOB. The other thing is that um, uh, the... Uh, Three legacy partners, well, the, the legacy partner that ended up being tried, uh, Mr. Mittendorf, who was the top of the audit um, uh, quality uh, assurance, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, national office role, he used a defense that essentially said uh, everybody's doing it that they, all of the big firms had hired people from the PCAOB with the express um, purpose of trying to um, improve uh, their scores. So not so much improve their quality, but actually try to improve their scores on the inspection um, uh, regime each year. Um, they also, uh, you know, implied that, uh, you know, the PCOB had sort of gone overboard on um, all of this inspection stuff and had been really too tough on KPMG, much tougher than anyone, including the other regulators, the other people at the PCAOB, and many of the people within the firms uh, ever expected them to do. And that there was something wrong with this picture, that somebody had not gotten the memo, that they were supposed to be tough, but not too tough on any of the big four firms. And the explicit reason that one of the defense uh, attorneys gave was that, you know, had you not heard uh, at the PCOB, um, you know, this idea that they were uh, too big to fail, that you could not, um, uh, you know, bring such regulatory uh, scrutiny on any of the big four firms that it would cause a concern in the market or concern amongst uh, the issuers uh, about uh, the viability or the, uh, the potential future uh, of any of the firms. That, to me, is just really, really nuts. Um, there was also, uh, obviously, one of the PCOB board members, Jay Hansen, 
who testified for the defense. He was subpoenaed, but he testified for the defense of Mr. Mittendorf. And he testified basically that he thought that the inspections group at the PCOB was being too hard on the firms and that he had offered himself to support the firms in understanding the process and giving them sort of heads up and guidance in how to uh, overcome uh, this obstacle or this challenge that uh, the inspections team was, was putting on the firms. And one other board member, Jeanette Franzel, had gone along with him to these pre-meetings where they met with the firms, including KPMG, uh, before board meetings where the firms were presenting information that was supposed to document how well they were uh, responding to criticisms from the PCOB. So it was really kind of amazing that they used a defense that basically said, you know, we're not supposed to be here. Um, we were not supposed to be scrutinized this hard and everybody is doing it. And um, even the regulators, the PCOB and the SEC maybe wanted us to have this information that there, how could it be illegal when everybody was trying to help us overcome this overzealousness by the regulator? So that really leads to the next area I wanted to explore with you. Uh, looking towards the, away from KPMG and towards the PCAOB, how do you th think this scandal has really impacted either the PCAOB directly or our perception of them uh, in, the, in the marketplace? So if you recall, um, the PCOB board <laughs> um, was basically completely swapped out. And that was before the indictments actually came through. And <coughs> we didn't really understand in the public why um, none of the board members were retained, even ones that had remaining terms. But now we know because at least two of them were cooperating with KPMG to try to help them come out from under this cloud. <coughs> and potentially there were others who were not being as... as <coughs> supportive of what the inspections team was trying to do. So you look at, you know, where are they now? Well, they've been actually very, very, very quiet. Um, I wrote a story that said they had not held any public meetings of the board um, this year at all, in 2019 at all. And that violates actually the Sarbanes-Oxley law where they're supposed to hold at least one public meeting each quarter. They've also not had any meetings of their standing advisory group or their investor advisory group, and um, both of those groups are really not sure whether they're going to continue. Um, and one board member who was installed when this whole swap-out occurred at the beginning of 2017 is already sort of ostensibly being told that they're not welcome back for another term because the SEC just... Um, put a posting up asking for other people to apply for the job. So I think they're really in um, uh, sort of a muddle, um, uh, kind of a inert inaction. Um, they're putting out a lot of press releases, but they're not really uh, showing their face in public and um, acting in what I would say is a regulatory mode. Uh, they're really kind of focusing on their knitting of looking at standards and other kinds of uh, non-controversial activities. So, um, uh, you need to get a drink of water? I'm so good. The, good. The, um, 
certainly one of the roles of the PCAOB is to is to look at regulatory standards. But do you are you troubled by this sort of lack of either uh, public oversight or even the, these public meetings? I guess I was a little concerned when I think it was Kathleen Ham uh, was the board member who uh, had her position posted. Uh, does that really point us in, in a direction uh, that uh, Jay Clayton is taking the PCAOB? Well, there have been some speeches and other public remarks. Uh, for example, at the AICPA SEC um, uh, PCOB meeting that they hold every December, it's kind of a, a SEC PCOB speak about accounting uh, every December, sponsored by the AICPA, the Trade Association. And they've said basically that they want to reorient towards a uh, more about helping the audit firms improve quality rather than being uh, sort of a policeman and a, pen uh, a, a penal institution. Um, and I think that's troubled a lot of people because there was a, another recent article um, uh, at uh, the Project on Government Oversight, uh, David Hilsenrath, who basically laid it out and said, you know, they have the power to enforce, they have the power to in, 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 um, in, uh, affect uh, billions of dollars of fines. And over the years, uh, they've basically not done that at all. Uh, they're more in the millions than in the billions in terms of the fines, even though the number of um, um, deficiencies that they reported in uh, inspection reports over the years uh, seems to justify um, um, fines in the billions. So they not only didn't do it before, but they're not uh, uh, actively uh, looking to be um, regulators and enforcement um, uh, agents uh, right now. It's really about um, trying to restore, I think, confidence uh, in the firms in the market, which um, is going to be a long road to hoe, given what's happened with KPMG. Um, they're putting out inspection reports. They're putting out results of the inspections. However, they're very slow in putting those reports out. And, you know, we're still in the state of where we don't know who the issuers are that they're talking about. We can't trace that back to specific audit partners. And the reports are coming out um, long after really um, anybody can do anything about it if, if we even were to uh, be able to discern uh, which companies they're talking about uh, that the auditors didn't, didn't do their job. So what about these two groups you mentioned, the Investors Advisory Group and the Standing Advisory Group? What's their role and uh, is it, uh, how does it help the industry move forward if they are meeting as the design? So like a lot of federal agencies, um, you have um, advisory groups of outside parties that are um, there to help the, um, the appointed board, um, you know, get a view on certain things. So the Standing Advisory Group is intended to provide uh, guidance on standards, on accounting standards and auditing standards to help the board, you know, look at, um, you know, from a, a professional perspective. So they have people from the firms, they have people from institutional investors, people from um, retail investing, people from uh, consumer groups. Um, the idea is how do accounting standards and auditing standards affect, you know, um, uh, investor confidence. Um, they haven't met. Um, and so we're looking at uh, the PCOB, uh, whoever's left there. They've had an enormous amount of turnover at all levels once they swapped out the board. Uh, they have a lot of uh, interim directors. Uh, they haven't had an enforcement chief since all this occurred. Um, 
you have a lot of people in the PCOB sort of running blind with no input from outside parties. And the investor advisory group is just, um, you know, what it says. It's a group of institutional and retail investors um, from all, all, you know, all walks of life, including global um, parties that are supposed to be sort of specifically advising on the impact of auditors on investors' perception of the integrity of the capital markets. So, Francine, if we could change the focus a little bit to another uh, item that uh, person and firm that has been recently in the news, and that's uh, PwC and Brandon Sparkle, uh, and also kind of the concept of uh, audit independence. I was wondering if you uh, might give us uh, some of your thoughts on the enforcement action involving PwC and Brandon Sparkle and why audit independence is so critical to, as you just said, maintaining the integrity of capital markets. So auditor independence is not a new concept with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. A lot of uh, you know uh, younger people or, or people new to the industry um, think that, but auditor independence has been sort of a core principle for a long, long time, in particular that auditors aren't supposed to have financial dealings with their own clients. They're not supposed to have you know inappropriate relationships with their clients. For example, the audit partner should not be having an affair with the controller or something. Um, those things are pretty basic, and they've been around, you know, since before I was born. But the recent, you know, additional independence um, rules that came after Sarbanes-Oxley added um, some very specific service prohibitions, so things that an auditor cannot do for their clients. And that was a direct uh, reaction to the Arthur Anderson Enron situation, where the perception was that um, Arthur Anderson had uh, taken its eye off the ball and was doing too much consulting and tax work and wasn't paying attention to the audit, or at least was um, sacrificing the quality of the audit for the sake of retaining its consulting uh, activities, which were much, much, much more uh, dollar value than the consulting activities. So they prohibited nine services, um, including um, prohibiting the auditor from performing systems design and implementation services. So essentially the auditor can't um, design or implement any um, financial software that impacts financial reporting, in particular, you know, an SAP or Oracle uh, ERP system, for example. And, you know, that's an easy one you would think to spot. It's an easy one that you would think, uh, you know, uh, everybody would know is, is hands off. But what's interesting in the PwC situation is that um, over several years, um, I think it's at least goes back to 2012 or, or quite a while, um, the SEC found um, 15 clients with 19 engagements where um, basically I think there was a one-man wrecking crew. Um, they only named Mr. Uh, uh, Sparkle um, in two situations, again, where the issuers are unnamed, um, but they they alluded to the fact that there was one particular business unit, um, uh, uh, governance, risk, and compliance uh, business unit, consulting unit, that seemed to try to insinuate themselves in all kinds of auditor engagements. And uh, this uh, partner that was um, charged in this in this uh, this enforcement action was not an engagement partner. 
he was what we would call an IT partner. He was the one who gets five, 10% of the hours on every audit engagement to look at internal controls over uh, information technology. And they are uh, the kind of partners who have their hands in multiple audits because they get a portion of each. They do their work, they bring their specialized team in, and then they leave. Except this particular guy was looking around at each audit that he was involved in um, for more work. And he uh, was allegedly um, actually even obfuscating what that work was. They were writing up engagement letters and other kinds of contracts that um, uh, didn't uh, describe the services that they were performing accurately so that the audit committees uh, and others were fooled and that those fees were categorized in um, audit-related um, uh, categories instead of what they actually were, which was system design and implementation, including Oracle and SAP systems. So they were looking for this prohibited work, and they basically hid the true um, uh, purpose of the work so that, um, in some cases, they uh, fooled audit committees into approving it, and in other cases, perhaps the clients knew perfectly well what they were hiring them for, but they decided that they wanted PwC to do that work and for this partner to do that work. But the SEC said this is completely prohibited and cited PwC and this partner for, as I said, 15 uh, clients and 19 total engagements where they um, had uh, done prohibited work and fined them um, eight point something million dollars, which is really kind of a drop in the bucket compared to probably what they earned in fees from all these services. Brenton, we've got a few minutes left, but I wanted to turn to an article that I found actually most intriguing of, of the plethora that you've uh, written uh, for Market Watch lately, and we're going to link to them all. <laughs> it's a new study to evaluate the impact of the mandate requiring identification of audit partners. And uh, it seems to be a little bit of a mixed bag, but what did you find? So there's um, a push to get some research out on a, a new rule that was implemented in early 2017 that now requires the audit firms to report the name of the lead engagement partner on every single public company audit. And that information is available on the PCAOB site. Uh, so not in the uh, actual audit uh, annual report or in the auditor's opinion, uh, it's still signed in the name of the firm, but if you go to the PCOB site, you can look up any um, individual uh, partner or you can look up any uh, company issuer or any firm and find out who are the uh, audit partners that are assigned as leads on their public company engagements. Um, what uh, most people are saying, though, including uh, the people that are trying to do research in this area, is that although they want to look at this because there's some data that's been collected, it's really not enough yet. So we only really have information about 2017, 2018, and we're starting to get some 2019, depending on the fiscal year. That's not enough for most academics to consider it to be you know, a robust um, um, research model. And so um, they're putting out sort of this research, but with all those caveats. I will say though, that I think that they're um, ignoring um, what I think is, is really more important. They put the rule in with the idea that naming the partner would somehow improve audit quality. 
that somehow if the partner's name was known, they would feel more personally accountable and that that transparency would sort of force some psychological, um, you know, ownership of the work um, and, you know, uh, 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 um, a way to get them to sort of, uh, you know, step up uh, to the plate a little bit more often. However, I think that, that that's sort of a stretch. Um, what actually uh, I'm looking at for a future article um, for the Stigler Center at University of Chicago's Booth School of Business is um, an article that says, you know, maybe uh, it's more important that the name of the auditor, audit partner is known when something uh, is going uh, funny at a particular company uh, or something has actually happened. We can look up that audit partner name and there's a little bit of naming and shaming that media can do. So media has traditionally not put audit partner names into any news stories about anything unless they were named in a specific litigation or named in a charge or disciplinary action. And uh, anecdotally, um, other reporters have asked me about this database. They've asked me, you know, for suggestions on how to use it. I think they're trying to push on editors to more often put the partner's name in so the people can start connecting more dots. Um, I'm using it all the time. Every time something happens, I look up to see who the partner is, and I try to put their names in the stories. Um, we'll see, again, how well that works out, um, but I think sometimes knowing the names and having the names associated with issues, so for example, at GE, where uh, KPMG is under significant pressure um, as the auditor um, and uh, that's working from both sides. Uh, activist investors are pushing GE to drop KPMG, not only because of its problems, but more because of the problems at GE that KPMG um, has not, uh, did not surface. So naming the partners, name, so people can start looking them up, making them familiar with the fact that this information exists, I think is important. And this is something that I'm gonna try to keep um, uh, advocating. Well, Francine, this has been a great catch-up on several uh, very big issues, certainly in your world, but I think uh, in the much broader business world, certainly in the compliance world, we need to be aware of these. So I wanted to thank you again. Uh, uh, Francine has written many, uh, several articles on the topics that we're going to link to in the um, uh, show notes. And if uh, people wanted to get in touch with you for any reason, Francine, what would be the best way for them to do so? Uh, at MarketWatch, F. McKenna, uh, at MarketWatch.com. Thank you. Uh, so you need to bookmark uh, MarketWatch and check Francine's uh, workout because that's one thing I do every day. So, Francine, thanks so much. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FPDA. As I said in the body of the podcast, you really should uh, check out Francine work on MarketWatch. I'm going to link to a couple of her pieces from MarketWatch and also to her site, Ray the Auditor, a great resource for all the auditors. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.